there may be people in your lives, in your family or in your workplace or wherever, whatever your circles may be, where you often ask this question. Am I as close to this person as I think I am? Is my perception of our relationship, does it match the reality of our relationship? For example, you may have, ha ha maybe you have a close friend where you thought you were close enough and you never got an invite to their wedding. Or maybe you have a friend, you sent off a Christmas card this last Christmas and you're still waiting for theirs. Or maybe they had some incredible thing or an event that happened in their life, a life event or a life change that happened, and you didn't get a phone call, but instead you read it on their social media posts or their feed. And you're left asking this question, are we really that close or am I making this up in my head? Today we're going to deal with the people who were forced to ask a question like that. But as much as sometimes we laugh about this, the situations in our own personal relationships, sometimes it happens with our relationship with God. Am I really as close to God as I think I am? Let me ask you this other question. It's a statement, and I want you to fill the second half of the statement. You don't have to say it out loud. Think to yourself. Take a moment. I know I am close to God. Because I know I am close to God because. Take a moment for yourself and think about how you would answer that question. For some of us, we're sitting in, in this room and you're saying, I'm here. It's a snowy Sunday morning, no reason for me to leave my house. But I'm here, I'm here because I love God. I love church and I'm here. So it must mean I'm close to God. Some of you may say, you know, I'm more than just coming to church, I give. I put money in the offering this morning. I gave to every fund. There's a missions fund. There's a benevolence fund. There's a building fund. All of them I've given to. I must be close to God. Or maybe you grew up in a Christian home. Maybe this is your legacy. Maybe your parents and your grandparents and, and their parents... They were all Christians, and so you say, this is our legacy. I must be close to God. Or maybe if you're like me, um, you could say, you know what? I left my job a few years ago, and I went off to Bible college, and then I went off to seminary, and then I became a pastor at a church, and now I'm standing here preaching. I'm telling you people how to live, right? So I must be closer to God. We're going to deal with a, a group of people who were confronted with this question. Are you really as close to God as you think? So, like I promised, Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. If you don't have a Bible, there's one on, your, on the seat pocket or underneath your seat there, or it'll be on the screen. All right, Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 9. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar... Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of, region, of the region of Ituria and Trachonitis, and Lysanus, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah in the wilderness. 
And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hill shall be made low and the crooked shall become straight. The rough places shall become level ways and all the flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of wipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with your repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown in the fire. Right at, at, at the start of chapter 3, Luke is giving us a little bit of a history lesson. He's laying, he's laying the foundation of this story. In essence, he's basically saying, here's who was in power. Here's who, here are all the big players of that time. Here's who was in Rome. Here's who was in Israel or in that time. And here's who was in power in, in the temple. There's Annas and Caiaphas and all of these people playing all of their important roles. But here's the deal. The word of God came not to any one of them, not to the typical, not to the expected, not to the people we would go to. In times of trouble, or not to the people that we expect God to speak to, but instead to John, the son of Zechariah. And here the word of God comes to such an unexpected place. In almost a way, in his Luke-like fashion, he's saying, sometimes in our own lives, we might be expecting God to work in a certain way. Guess what? He works in something so different. And so he's saying, the word of God came to John. What is this word of God? Because this word of God was powerful enough that he left his family, he left everything that he knew, and ran off into the desert. And there Matthew talks about John saying he was not, he was not a typical person. Here was a man, when people went out to meet him, they met a man who was dressed in camel hair. He had a leather belt. He was eating locusts and wild honey. He was a wild man in the wilderness. But what was the word that came to him? The word was simply this. Prepare the way. Prepare the way. You see, in that time, the words prepare the way was not unheard of. For example, for in their context, let's say today, um, the king or the president or the governor was coming to the town of Burlington. What all the people of Burlington would do, would, ga would gang up together and they would go out into the streets, clean up all the debris, whatever was untidy would be made clean, all the potholes would be filled up, all the bumps would be made flat, everything would be made perfect because guess what? The president's coming to town or the king is coming into town or the governor or this dignitary is coming into town. And so for the people of the day, when someone cried out, prepare the way, it meant someone was coming. And here's John's job. His only task is to scream out, to cry out into the wilderness, to cry out to the people of Israel, prepare the way. Because guess what? 
the one coming after me, that's the Messiah. He is coming, and there needs to be a work that happens before he gets here. And so for a few minutes today, I just want to take a moment to look at what is this preparation? What does prepare the way look like? What does it involve? You see, when people went out to meet John, a guy with a huge PR problem in just the way he looked. Now, he was, the people were received by these words, you brood of wipers, you children of snakes. If there was an insult, this was it. And not only did he insult them, he also called them out saying, how dare you come to me? Who told you you could flee judgment? Who told you you could flee what is coming to you, what you're, what you're going to get? What is he talking about here? And then he goes on to even insult their ancestry. He says, you claim to be children of Abraham. And you say, because I have this. You claim to be something special. And he says, don't claim that. See, here's a people who John is looking at and discerning. That yes, they had come out to see John, to hear from John, to maybe even be baptized by John. But what they were truly, what was in their hearts was this idea that we are the children of Abraham. We have this legacy. We are the people of this tribe. We are this people. And so we are close to God. This is what makes us worthy of the Messiah that's coming. And he's saying, your affiliations don't matter. My closeness to God is not dependent in my affiliations. Me personally, I grew up in, in the church. My family was in the church, my grandparents, as far as I can remember, all the genealogies that, have, that we've ever done on our families, they've been in the church. And so for me, I could, all, I could always claim, hey, guess what? I'm a Christian. I must be close to God. Or this is, this is what makes me worthy. And this is what the people in that day were doing. They were saying, hey, Abraham was a friend of God, so we must be too. Abraham was chosen by God, so we must be too. And John's looking at them saying, your affiliations do not matter when it comes to your closeness, when it comes to the work of the Messiah. Why is John speaking so harshly? Because of the next statement that he makes, judgment is at hand. It's almost like you're in a building that's on fire and you don't realize it and he's screaming out to you and saying, get out, get out. And for someone screaming out, they're not going to use nice words. They're going to do whatever it takes to get you out. And he's saying, judgment is coming. The axe is at the root of the tree. You are a tree that is bearing no fruit. And judgment is coming. So repent. So what is that work of preparation? The work of preparation is repentance. See, what John is saying is, I know I'm close to God. Because I have a repentant heart. I know I'm close to God because I have a repentant heart. And for a few more minutes today, that's what I want to unpack. What does it look like to have a repentant heart? What does repentance mean? 
It's a hard topic for us to talk about. Most of us have gone through some moments of repentance in our own lives if you've been in, in this faith for long or if you've followed Jesus for long. But what does repentance look like? See, true repentance has two parts. First, to be truly repentant, you have to look backwards. And that's what we often think about. When we, when we talk about repentance, we often think about, hey, I did something wrong, and so I'll look back at it, I'll reflect on it, and I'll confess it, and I'll ask God for forgiveness. And if, you, if that's your definition, you're correct. That is a part of repentance. The first part of repentance is to look backwards. You see, Paul in, in Romans reminds us this, that all of us have sinned. We were all enemies towards God. We were all short of the glory of God. That's who we are. That's our true nature. We are evil people. We have sinned against God. We have sinned against each other. We have fallen short in so many ways. And the first part of it is to acknowledge our true estate. Is to say, God, I am sorry. I accept who I am. I need your work in me. I confess. I need your forgiveness. And the Bible reminds us that he is ready to forgive. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, Paul reminds us this. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. But worldly Grief produces death. We're no strangers to bad apologies, right? Uh, we've seen people get caught in, in things that they do, in things that they've said, in things that, that they shouldn't have been caught up in. And what usually follows? A quick apology. And so often we look at these apologies and say, hmm, was that really heartfelt? Was that meant? See, repentance demands that we confess and we ask for forgiveness. But there is a second part. To truly repent, we look backwards, but we live forwards. To truly repent is to look backwards, is to confess, is to ask God for forgiveness, and he will. But it doesn't end there. You see, there's a second part. There is the living out of repentance. That's where these people had gotten it wrong. So the people that came up to him, the crowds in, the, in those crowds were tax collectors and soldiers and, and religious leaders. There were Pharisees and Sadducees. And the thing that they had gotten wrong, you see, what they're out there for, they're out there to be baptized by John. John is leading them into a baptism of repentance. They're ready to be baptized. But what they're not doing, they're saying, yes, we claim to have repented, but we do not live it out. He's saying, bear fruit of your repentance. If you claim to say one thing, if you claim to live one thing, live it out. To repentance starts at the heart, but doesn't stop there. Going back to those bad apologies. Heard apologies like, I'm sorry that I hurt you, that it hurt you, or I'm sorry you were offended. I'm sorry you got upset. I regret some of the things I said. I'm sorry, but I did the right thing. Sorry I did that, being as vague as possible. How do you respond when you hear those apologies? What goes through your mind? 
right? You hear, you hear a person respond that way and you see it all around us. What goes through your mind? You know immediately that there, that there is no right coming after this. There is no change of behavior coming after this. They're saying the right things just to get through. You see, there is something called attrition versus contrition. Two fancy words. The first word basically means, let's say I'm doing something, and Rob here catches me in the act of it. And now, guess what I, I got to do? I got to respond to what he just saw me doing. And so more often than not, I'm responding because of fear that Rob might expose me or the, the consequences that I'll face because of what I did. And so I immediately apologize. That's the word attrition. It's a fancy word to say, I got caught, so I got to be sorry. Versus what God is looking for is contrition. The psalmist says what he's seeking is a, is a broken and contrite spirit. A contrite spirit says, God, I did wrong. I accept that. This is who I am. And no matter what, I am not worthy of your forgiveness, but I'm still going to ask it anyway. Contrition leads to the next step. God Repentance for me is walking this way, knowing that I've sinned, and I'm going to turn around backwards. Repentance is walking away from something towards something. Luke, in, in chapter 15, he's going to record the parable of the, the prodigal son. And in the prodigal son, most of us here sitting here, we know the story, and the story goes like this. There was a father who had two sons, the older and the younger. The younger decided one day, you know what, I've lived with my family long enough. I'm going to go strike it out on my own. He asked his father for his inheritance. He asked for whatever was rightly his. The father gives him and he goes off into the city. Lives the city life, lives the life of fame and fortune, blows it all away. And here he is broken, broke, without friends. And in a pigsty. And in this pigsty, the only job that he could find, a, an Israelite boy, he realizes, you know, you know what? I had it good in my father's house. In that pigsty, he realizes, I can go back. But for me to go back, I have to realize my own estate. And in that pigsty, he cries out, I have sinned against you and my God. You see, there is this moment of repentance that happens in this child, in this boy's life. But the next step is the most important because it's all good that he repented. But what good would it be if he stayed in that pig, pigsty? What good would it do for him? How would it benefit him if he remained where he was? You see, his next step was to get back up and go back the same road he came. He left his father's house down the road. He went back to his father's house. And in his father's house was his father ready to receive him. Repentance requires that we look backward but also live forward. As we continue in chapter 3, verses 10 through 14. And the crowds, they, they continue to ask him, what then shall we do? So you're saying, yes, we've got to repent, but what do we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with the one who has none. And whoever has food is to do the same. 
tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, and what then what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation and be content with your wages. See, repentance is a matter of practical living. The crowd had questions. They're asking, how can we live out this repentance? And John is laying out some practical ways. Yes, you're looking backward, but you're living forward. You are living in generosity. If your life was marked with selfishness and the hoarding and greed, now your life is marked by generosity. If your life as a tax collector was marked by, by stealing, by taking what was not yours, now your life is marked by generosity the other way. You're giving it away. If your, mar if your life as a soldier was marked by overexerting your influence, now it is living in submission. Now it's living the opposite. Now it's being kind. Now it's living out where your weapons and your uniform and your authority does not have a say in how you treat people. As we come to a close today, my question for us here is, what does repentance look like for you and me? Because most of us in this room, we can say, yes, I can't, I, I've, I've been following Jesus for a while. Maybe it's a day, maybe it's years and decades. And I've repented along the way. But what does true repentance look like? You see, when, when the people come up to John, came up to John, John did not invite them to come live as he lived. He's not saying leave your families behind like I did. He's not asking the tax collector to leave his job as a tax collector. He's not asking the soldier to lay down his arms. He's saying live and do what you're already doing, but live a life of repentance wherever you are. So if your job today is a doctor, as a doctor, live a life of repentance. If your job today is in construction, as in construction, live a life of repentance. If your job, whatever it may be, Wherever your circle of friends may be, whatever your circle of influence may be, live it out, but bear fruit in that context. What does repentance look like for you and me? If you've been selfish, maybe God's calling you to generosity. If maybe in your business or in your workplace you found ways to get around rules or you found ways to have an unfair advantage... You found ways to get paid under the table, whatever it may be. God's calling for a reformation. Maybe it's normal practice to you to exert influence over others. He's calling you to consider what it really looks like. He's calling you to lay down your own rights so that you can stand up for those who may not have those. He's calling us to lay down our pride maybe in our relationships that are broken. He's calling us to lay down our battles so we can fight for those who need us on their side. Let's get a little more personal. How about that, how about that thing that you do? That you've been asking God, God forgive me, God take this away from me. Yet you can't get yourself away from. You know what it is. 
Maybe it's that additive attitude of lying that you have that you just can't seem to tell the truth. Or maybe it's an addiction that you've kept hidden so well from people around you. What does repentance look like? He's saying, ask me for forgiveness. I will liberally do that. But then comes the hard work of living it out. Then comes the hard work of inviting people in. Then comes the hard work of inviting people into your pain and into your mess and into your, into your brokenness. It, it, it's the hard work of actually fixing it. What does, what does repentance look like? See, there's a certain hypocrisy to have one's sins forgiven without being delivered of them. You can ask God to forgive you every night, but still live in that sin the next morning. It's a false Christianity. It's a false relationship. It allows for a delusional living on our part and confusion on those who watch us. True repentance is to look backwards, consider, confess, and be forgiven. But it also requires that we live forward, bearing fruit. You see, it's a daily task. It's a daily task that we ought, we, we ought to take up. The songwriter writes it this way, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, oh God, oh God take it. Take and seal it. That's who we are. That's the task. So this morning as you head back to wherever God has taken you, wherever your week will take you, whatever life will take you, know this, that here's our task. Repent. Repent for life behind. And live out the fruit in the life forward. Would you join your... Would you join me in prayer as we bow our heads? And if there is a moment, if you want to take this moment, James is going to lead us in a song. I would ask that you don't rush out of here. I know things are getting rough out there, but take a moment to truly repent. But know this, that repentance starts here, but it's lived out there. So take a moment to ask God to come into your situation, to come into your circumstance, to re restore, to forgive, whatever it is that you're seeking. And then, to go live it out. You see, there is an important piece that I missed out in all of this conversation. And I don't want you to leave thinking, this is what I've been saying. All this time I've been throwing imperatives at you saying, do this, do this, live this way, live this way. But some of you have already caught on saying, I can't do it. I've tried. I've done my best at living this life and I fail all the time. And my answer is yes, that's true. Because you were never meant to do this on your own. You were never meant to do this in solitary. You see, there's one cry in the Bible that is applicable to all of us. It's the word repent and believe. Two sides of the same coin. Repent and believe. You see, we can't repent without believing. We can't believe without repenting. Repenting is our work, which comes before the work of Christ. 
Christ's work empowers us to live it out. He died so that you and I wouldn't have to. He took on our sins so that you and I wouldn't have to bear the burden of it. So this morning, as you seek God, seek him to help you. Seek him to empower you. Let's bow our heads. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you for your word that comes to us, reminding us of who you are, who we are. I pray that you would enable us, Lord, to repent of the things that have gone wrong in our lives, of the things we've become, of the things we've said and done. Lord, only you know. And I pray that you would help us to live out this forgiveness, help us to live out this repentance, help us to live out lives that were contrary to the way we've lived it so far. And every day that you would help us, empower us to bear the fruit. In Jesus' name we pray.